Welcome to Inside Vancouver Opera. My name is Ashley Daniel Foote, the Senior Manager of Partnerships, Engagement and EDI. Today we are talking Dutchman about Wagner's The Flying Dutchman, our opera which opens on April 29th and runs to May 7th. You can grab your tickets at vancouveropera.ca. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome, welcome to Inside Vancouver Opera and our discussion of our brand new production of Wagner's Mammoth, The Flying Dutchman. As artists who work in opera, we are telling stories that reflect and shape our place in the world. And in doing so, we also have a responsibility to recognize the history of this land and to explore and challenge our relationship to that history. We recognize and support and celebrate the enduring presence of Indigenous peoples on this land, and it's a privilege for us to be here on the traditional lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We are so lucky to welcome a wonderful panel of fabulous Wagnerian lovers and artists and creatives to this conversation today as we get ready for our big night coming up on April 29th at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre. If you haven't got your tickets, VancouverOpera.ca is where you want to do that. We are glad to welcome Les Dalla, the conductor of our opera, and Vancouver Opera's associate conductor. We're also thrilled to welcome American soprano Marjorie Owens, a grand finals winner of the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions, and Marjorie plays Santa in our opera. We're also thrilled to have UBC opera professor and opera singer J. Patrick Raftery here. Patrick is here to talk a little bit about the unique history of the opera and Wagnerian singing in general. We also have Stannis Smith, a musician, architect, and Wagnerian superfan and Vancouver Opera board member. And he's going to share some of his own unique perspectives on Wagner's unique and outsized influence on our culture. So we have lots to get to as we think about the Flying Dutchman, which tells the haunting story of a sailor and his daughter who encounter a fabled ghost ship during a storm on the sea. It's a crazy story of all sorts of tumult. And Patrick, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, what is this opera about? <laughs> Well, it's a very straightforward thing, actually, but it's based on some Nordic mythology and mythology of the sea. And um, some people have actually said that they've seen the Flying Dutchman and seeing the ship is meant to be a doom, like, you know, like seeing the four horsemen, like, you know, something is something's going up. But I, one of the reasons I think it's so interesting is because, not just because Marjorie's there, but I think Senta's the character that evolves and changes the most in the piece. Everyone else kind of stays the same, but I think it's a story of love and turmoil and devotion and passion. Um, I think it's very interesting that Heinrich Heine is, is where the story originated from. And I think that Wagner had his own story with running from people and being lost at sea. And <laughs> Dennis will talk more about that. But this idea of the sea and the ocean and not knowing who your parentage is and not knowing where you're from. And also the character, like the character in Lohengrin, makes an unrealistic demand of the love interest of the woman and an unrealistic request. And then that really puts her into conflict about how to deal with promises that she's made and promises that she's changed and and the kind of sacrifice she's willing to make for that. Wonderful, Marjorie. I was just hearing about the changes that Patrick was talking about that Senta undergoes in the opera. I'd love you to talk a little bit about your perspective on that. This is one of your signature roles and, and talk us through that process. 
Okay, well, I love Senta mainly because she is trying to buck uh, the norms of society. She does not want to get married and have children. She's an outsider. She wants to choose her own destiny, and she focuses that solely on the Dutchman. She grew up, you know, learning this tale, and she's kind of obsessed (laughs) about him. And uh, when he finally does appear, it's kismet, it's fate. Obviously, she is meant to be with him, and he is her ticket out of this everyday sort of small-town life. And so the opera progresses in such a way that, well, no spoilers, but (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely unconventional. Her, Her life takes an unconventional turn, and I love that about her. Certainly does. Less when we think about musical motifs, when we hear the shark coming in Jaws, when we think about the Wicked Witch appearing in The Wizard of Oz, there's, there's musical moments that cue that. These go right back to Wagner. Can you talk a little bit about Wagner's unique musical influences that are immediately apparent in this opera? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you get them right off the top in the first few bars of the overture, which is just this powerful, dramatic, colorful, real emotional ride. And, you know, the motif of the Dutchman, literally just two notes, which recurs all the way through. There's a quote that I found, the composer Franz Lachner, who is not so well known these days, but was a contemporary of Wagner, who kind of made the sarcastic observation that the problem with this score is that as soon as you open up the pages, the wind blows at you. It literally <laughs> is that incredibly descriptive. You get the stormy music with this, you know, flying around in the, in the strings all over the place. You get the motif of, of redemption that that the center represents, uh, which is a very beautiful, almost chorale-like thing. Uh, you get the sailors' chorus; all they're all like uh, you know previewed in in the overture itself. The that initial theme of of the Dutchman, just those two notes. I think he definitely got from Beethoven in the Ninth Symphony, which has the very same thing happening. Literally, the very opening of it is just an open fifth, and, and the, the, the interval is a fifth. Uh, and, and you hear it cascading down and, and Wagner became super obsessed with Beethoven, got to know his work. So that was for sure his starting point. And also Carl uh, Maria von Weber, who was a little bit older than Wagner, but Wagner knew him personally and, and his work at Freischütz. So it, it comes definitely from, from, you know, that Germanic tradition. Fascinating. Stannis, you have a long history with Wagner and you wrote an essay called Why Wagner, which we will be publishing very shortly in celebration of the opening of the opera. There's no question that Wagner arouses more debate and more arguments than about almost anyone. So I want you to talk a little bit about your passion for his music and squaring it with his undeniably troubled and controversial life and political beliefs. Well, thanks for the question, uh, Ashley. It's it's a really tough one. And um, I find that I can admire the art and despise the artist at the same time. Uh, I have to admit with a certain amount of difficulty, there are certain sort of creative geniuses who somehow manage to combine both the best and the worst of human nature. And you can think of people in the visual arts, such as Picasso or Diego Rivera, who have been you know, incredibly misogynistic. You can think about composers who've had fascist tendencies or have been collaborators, such as Richard Strauss or Karl Orff. But there's no doubt that Wagner's in a league of his own. And I think that it's important not to gloss over just how uh, appalling he was on a personal level and uh, his anti-Semitism, his notorious article, Jews on Music. uh, Just one quote from it, uh, I regard the Jewish race as the born enemy of pure humanity and everything that is noble. And it gets worse from there. 
So there's no question uh, that Wagner was an anti-Semite. He was extremely unpleasant and probably not the sort of person you want to invite over for dinner. And um, the key, the key question to my mind is to what extent his personal values and conduct have tainted his music and his operas. And I uh, have a very different point of view on that from the school of thought that says that there are some anti-Semitic messages embedded in his operas. And they sometimes talk point to the Flying Dutchman saying, well, it's based on um, a legend about the wandering Jew who taunted Jesus on the way to the crucifixion. Now, I don't buy that at all. Uh, and I don't buy it because it's very clear that Wagner embedded highly personal details into Dutchman, uh, as was mentioned earlier. The plot is based on a harrowing storm that he encountered at sea just off Norway. The other uh, personal touch is that one of the key themes in The Flying Dutchman is the theme of redemption through love of a, of a pure woman. And to put the, the, you know, the, the plot in a single sentence, uh, it's about a sailor do doomed to sail the oceans until he can be saved by the faithful love of a pure woman. You can argue that Wagner not only explored that theme in his operas, but he explored it through his many uh, multiple affairs with many women. Um, so uh, given these sort of autobiographical details, I find that it makes no sense to me to claim that the plot is based on some kind of uh, anti-Semitic uh, trope. And at the end of the day, the reasons I believe to listen to Wagner is because he wrote music of such unparalleled power, uh, nobility and beauty, uh, because he pushed the whole language of music into new territory and because he transformed the world of opera. I've kind of made peace with, uh, with Wagner, the, the person and Wagner, the composer of genius. Uh, and there's no question that when you sum it all up, he was, while he was a horror, personally, he was a phenomenon and a genius. Hmm. Hmm. Patrick, I, I want to talk a little bit about how, how about the Dutchman is now considered the gateway opera to, to Wagner's much larger works. Why, why is this and what, what should we watch? What should we as an audience be watching and listening for as we dig in and uncover this controversial work? I mean, I think that when you look at it and look at the time and the other operas that were produced in that year, like I Lombardi and Don Pasquale and things like that, you go, it's reminiscent of, there's an overture that refers to some of the music in the piece, then there's aria pieces and set pieces, and I think the audience can relate to it in a way, but it's really a gateway for me because so much of the music is already a foreshadowing of Kundry and already a foreshadowing of this kind of upside down, um, if I can make a pop culture reference, this upside down of this world that is the third act of Tristan, you can see when the ghosts come in, there's a whole different sound of where they come from. There's a whole, when Eric sings his lovely little aria at the end, it's so reminiscent of an old song with a very old classical structure. And then it turns really kind of crazy. I think when Wagner redid Tannhäuser, he certainly wrote uh, the music for Venus to be very forward thinking and very much uh, of a different tone, whole tonal structure. And I think we can hear that a lot in Dutchman, but all of the characters are relatable to us. You know, would we, we who would we, what would we sell for our own benefit? Would we sell our own children? Would we demand of a person this kind of love and passion. So I think it's a very available story. I think the ghosts are creepy. I think the ghosts, the ghosts fighting with the sailors on land are exciting. And these themes of love and redemption to just speak to everyone. So musically, it has enough going for it in terms of what was happening before. And, and if you know where 
Tristan went, you can really hear a lot of the music that where he was going, I think, with Flying Dutchman. Fascinating. Mar- Marjorie, as I mentioned earlier, you've sung this role before. How, how do you get started when you, when you start to come back to this role again and again? And how do you sustain and prepare for something that you've done so well so many times? Well, specifically with Senta, it's, uh, it's, it kind of fits like a glove. It's one of those roles that feels mostly effortless. <laughs> and those are rare. But when it happens, it's, it's like a friend that you haven't seen in a few months or like a year could go by, but then you guys get back in touch and you hit it off like there's no time this pass whatsoever. That's what Flying Dutchman feels like to me. And I love it specifically because I love the orchestration and I love how massive it is because I never feel like I have to try and sing over it or I get overpowered. For me, Wagnerian orchestration feels like (laughs) I'm being comforted. Like it feels like I'm being supported. You know, like I always get so nervous when I sing pieces that the orchestration is very light and very exposed and very precious. I love the feeling of a full orchestra because I don't know, it feels like we're doing it together. We're, you know, Gesamtkunstwerk, like it's all part and parcel. Like we're, we're doing this together. And I, I love that feeling. And I rarely get that outside of Wagner for some reason. Wow. Well, we have to talk to Les about that because you're, when you're talking about everything together, um, that's definitely something that Wagner pioneered. And you use you used that word. Les, can you talk a little bit about how you, you joined forces with Marjorie and the other fantastic singers to to all work together towards this common incredible goal? Well, I feel very lucky because I can I can attest to the fact that this role does fit Marjorie like a glove. I remember the first <laughs> day of music, you know, which is always, uh, I mean, it's exciting. It's, um, it's a little bit trepidatious because, you know, you've got people who haven't sung together. Sometimes they have. And, and for me too, this is, I mean, Marjorie's done the work in a lot of places around the world. And uh, I've, I've worked on the piece. It's my first time conducting it. So I, I feel very... You know, again, lucky, humbled, uh, grateful, uh, and ex- very excited. But uh, we walked in, and I just thought, "Oh man, this is going to be amazing!" And uh, it's true that you know the kind of voice type that Marjorie is, and that Patrick has been in his career is is the rarest of them. The kind of voice that can soar, uh, you know, above an orchestra of you know sixty to hundred people. It's the dimensions of that, and that maybe is, is a great word because, as, as Patrick pointed out, I forgot that Pasquale was written in the same year. I knew it was around the same time, but wow. you you know, you, you look at those two pieces side by side, you would never imagine that they were written in the, the same year. But it just goes to show that you know, we music and and art and everything is pluralistic. There's all everything going on at the same time. But in Wagner's case, again, he was picking up on, you know, late Beethoven, everything in the 19th century industrial revolution, everything, it was getting bigger. When you look at, you know, um, one of my obsessions as a kid was Franz Liszt as a, as a pianist and Liszt became Wagner. Well, they were very good friends and Liszt became Wagner's father-in-law when, when he married Goldsima. <laughs> um, but Liszt also was, and Berlioz, they were the people pushing music in, in every which way. I mean, the, the kind of virtuosity uh, of, of that time, uh, the, the instruments were getting bigger. So, you know, the Beethoven, the Beethoven piano was smaller and, 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 and more compact and, and less uh, resonant than what happened within a few decades. And all of this, I think, 
plays a role in the world of Wagner, where it really is about dimensions getting bigger, about, you know, then creating a ring, which is 16 hours in length. Mm. And the thing, that, again, a reminder to, to our audience, and as a musician, what I always have to remind myself too is, of course, we're always talking about music, music, music. But I mean, he wrote his own librettos. He had the entire world of how he wanted it to look and sound. He, he had an idea for the stage direction. So it's that totality when you're talking about the Gesamtkunstwerk, not, not just to mention the architecture and structure of the music, but it, the, the concept goes way, way beyond that. And to eventually designing his own theater where, you know, where, the, where these pieces could, could best uh, speak. So it, it, that's hard to imagine any, I can't think of any other creative artist in, in the world of opera or, or elsewhere that really uh, can equal Wagner's accomplishment in that, in that way. Stanis, you've you've traveled all over the world to see Wagner's operas, and you've been to the Bayreuth Festival and seen seen this this theater that he created. Can you talk a little bit more about all of that and how and why and your your passion for that? Yeah, well, um, as as Liz said, I mean uh, Wagner not only transformed the world of opera, but he he basically transformed the, the world of theater architecture, invented in- musical instruments, the Wagner tubers. I mean his accomplishments are truly astonishing and and. It's hard to think of any person in uh, Western art history who had such an impact uh, on such, um, you know, in, in such a, such an astonishing way. And it's almost as if in the world of the visual arts that all of the post-impressionists were rolled into a single person. I mean, uh, Wagner's impact on the world of music is is truly unparalleled. And, and um, I don't know if some of you might remember, there was an old a Heineken ad from years ago. It was uh, that Heineken gets to the parts that other beers cannot reach. Uh, well, for me, for me Wagner, Wagner gets to the parts that other composers cannot reach. And, you know, he can he can evoke um, a landscape scenery like nobody before or since. He could write a love duet like nobody before or since. So what I'm looking forward to with this production uh, is a particularly the Overture, Act 1 Overture, you just, as Les said, you just feel the salt and the spray on your face. It's it's incredible. Uh, act two at the start, the spinning chorus. You don't actually need to see anything on stage, just to kind of feel, you know, what's going on. And of course, adding adding the stage effects just just you know amplifies the whole effect. The end of Act two is the great uh, love duet uh, between uh, Dutchman and Center, the very first great love duet in in Wagner, um, and um, it's it's wonderful, it's glorious. So uh, I guess my advice to anybody is if you're uh, Wagner curious, uh, Dutchman is probably the easiest entry point into his music. It's certainly the shortest of his great operas. So I really would encourage uh, Vancouver audiences to come and see this very rare treat on our stage. Wonderful, wonderful. We have a few minutes left. I want to go back to Patrick. You've sung Wagner all over the place. What makes Wagnerian singing so different? How and, and how? How do you do it? What are the constituent parts? I, I just have to, I kind of have to mirror what Marjorie and Les said about the orchestra. I, I, I was fortunate that I got to sing a lot of Mozart and Rossini and Donizetti and stuff before I changed Bach and started singing Wagner. And Mozart and stuff, you feel kind of exposed and you feel if you're in a duet or an aria, in a way, I know there's a person down there working really hard to support me. And in a bel canto opera, you sort of got, you sort of lead. But with a Wagner opera, you know the opera is a protagonist in the piece. And when you go out there and sing the Tristan and Tisolde duet, and that orchestra is doing all that, it really is like, 
oh my gosh, we have this, we have another entity in this duet and it's a, and it becomes a real active protagonist. Wow. And it gives you, I found it difficult to learn the music, more difficult than learning other music that was strophic or something else. So it was a different kind of commitment of time and wrestling to learn it. But once I learned it and once I learned and I also I spoke German by the time I started singing Wagner and it isn't normal German. It's not normal conversational German. It's tricky. So so in a way, speaking German wasn't useful. <laughs> you, you, it was a little bit like Yoda speaking English. It was like that kind of awkward backwards German. But once you learned it, it was like solid as a rock. So I, uh, I felt a little bit the same as Marjorie. The physical commitment of time and the physical commitment of your body was supported by standing on that orchestra and feeling the orchestra supporting you. And I never felt exposed the same way as I felt in Mozart or Bellini. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Mar Marjorie, I want to come back to you and I want to talk about some of the young singers who may be interested in becoming a Wagnerian soprano or a tenor or a baritone. How on earth would they begin that journey and how would they sustain that? And what can they do now to set the stage for success? I know it's a big one. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> when you start out, I would definitely suggest a solid technique. It comes in very helpful for opera in general, but specifically with something like Wagner or Strauss, where you need the stamina and the endurance and, as Nielsen said, some comfortable shoes, you know, you should, to <laughs> make it throughout the whole opera. Um, and pacing yourself, I would say, you know, starting with starting with Mozart. Like, I, I started singing opera when I was 14. I was determined to be Queen of the Night. You know, all the, some pretty interesting roles I was, I was determined to try um, until I settled into what was more like a spinto repertoire in my late 20s and 30s. But I started with a lot of... Um, Honestly, Mozart and Strauss really cleaned up my technique because I had no other choice. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't use a sustainable technique, you're going to burn out pretty quickly with those. And the same can definitely be said with Wagner. If you don't have a capable technique, then you're just going to end up shouting and, and you're not going to last that long. So it does really require uh, pacing and not, I know in my twenties, I always, I wanted to, everyone was like, Oh, you have such a large voice. So I was like, I do. And so I would like try and push and like try and sound as loud as I could, which is detrimental. It does not work. Um, and I later learned, uh, to curb that. And Wagner helped me with that mm. because he's just, you simply can't do that with Wagner. You have to sing as healthfully as possible or else you're not going to last that long. Thank you. That's powerful advice. Well, I, I want to go back to less. You, you have had an experience with Wagner for many years, and I, I, there's a story, and I wasn't sure I was going to ask you this, but I am. Tell us about how you discovered Wagner. You are the youngest member of the Wagnerian Society. I want to know more about this. Yeah, so my story goes back to Toronto in high school days, and uh, I was uh, a student at St. Michael's Choir School in, in Toronto, which is a, an excellent school that has uh, still to this day a very strong, in particular, choral department. So we would have an hour of singing because we had to sing at the cathedral services on the weekend. So we'd be putting together different programs every weekend. And the repertoire ranged from Gregorian chant to Renaissance motets to contemporary things. So and I studied piano and organ and violin there at the school as well. They had faculty. So I feel, you know, looking back, it was very rare kind of educational experience. So, I, you know, as somebody, I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of a lot of music. But it was in um, music history class, which was also taught at St. Mike's. 
that uh, when we were doing the uh, the grade three history exam, which was seen as the most successful because it was the 19th century, the Romantic period. So all the biggies are in that. And this particular week was was about Wagner, and I was sitting in the back of the class with some friends, and we were yapping, you know, we were teenagers, and, and blah, blah, blah. And then the, I just remember the professor who said something about, well, this is the, the prelude to Tristan and Isolde, and uh, so, you know, it starts and, looks, you know, couldn't hear anything, so it was kept talking, and suddenly you heard this you know, the cello with that minor sixth and everything, and and the chord with the English horn, and I suddenly thought, I don't think I've ever heard any music like this before. This is just, you know, I thought I knew a lot of music. And then I, after, after about, you know, 20 seconds, I said to my friends, shut up, I really want to listen to this. And then I just remember this eight, 10 minutes, whatever it was, I, I literally felt breathless. I had never heard music like this that starts from nothing that has this kind of rich, rich uh, chromatic language that I had not yet come across. And uh, at the end of that class, I just wanted to get to know everything about Wagner. So I rushed to the library and we happened to have a decent one. They had some, you know, cassette tapes of things and some books. I kind of became obsessed. And it happened to be that actually that year, the Canadian Opera Company was doing Tristan a few months later. So I went to see it twice. And then I was just thought, I got to go full, full in on this. And I saw that in the program, there was an ad for the Toronto Wagner Society. And they were looking for members. And I thought, oh, what the hell? I'm going to join. So I did. And I showed up in Rosedale <laughs> for the first meeting. I paid my $10 or whatever it was. And, and the, the gentleman at the door looked at me very confused. And he said, okay, may I help you? And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, this is Toronto Wagner Society. And he was like, yes. He goes, hi, I'm your newest member. And so I went to a few meetings with people who were about four times my age. Uh, but I, I learned a lot and uh, it was sort of my entry point. And I kind of got over that, uh, you know, not to say one ever gets over it, but I moved on to other things. But uh, yeah, when I when I discovered Wagner, it really like was like a tidal wave, like the opening of Dutchman. I just whoosh, and uh, yeah. Well, congratulations. That, that is quite the odyssey. Well, thank you. Quite the odyssey. <laughs> I actually have one more question for Stannis. And what was the moment that you knew when you were hooked on Wagner? Was there a specific time? Well, a little bit like Liz, I, I actually avoided Wagner for a number of years. I've always been interested and passionate in opera, but I avoided Wagner for the reasons that many people do, just preconceptions around the person and, you know, the opera's being too long, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then a friend asked me if I would join him to go to the Seattle Ring, uh, which I somewhat reluctantly agreed to do. And then a few days later, went into a serious case of sticker shock when I got the bill for the tickets. <laughs> and, um, and he said to me, you know, you really should do a little bit of prep for this because it's not just like, it's not like going to just a normal opera. So I bought a, a set of CDs and I sat um, for a few months listening to them uh, with the score. And I thought, this is the most astonishing stuff I've ever heard. And, and I couldn't, I actually couldn't believe what I'd been missing. And in some cases had tears running down my cheek. I mean, I, it was just one of those sort of uh, epiphanies that one has, and I've never looked back. So uh, that was, yeah, that was my entry point into Wagner. I, I have to ask Marjorie, what is the strangest or most unusual thing that's happened to you while you've been singing a Wagnerian role? I would, I would, okay, maybe the strangest experience was when I sang my first Wagnerian role. Uh, it was for, uh, it was with the uh, Zempo Opa in Dresden. And I had never sung a German role really before, and I didn't speak the language yet. <laughs> and uh, I was singing uh, Tannhäuser, I was singing Elisabeth, and um, 
I feel like the audience knew the role better than I did at that point because it was a Vita Alfnama, so it was a repeat. <laughs> it, it was not a new production at all. So we had maybe a week of rehearsals and then we were up. Wow. And <laughs> the the audience in Dresden, they do not play. They're very they're hardcore Wagnerites. I mean, they premiered Tannhäuser in the Zempopa, so uh, it was a terrifying experience. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, but the more I got into it, I mean, it was fabulous. Like, we had a wonderful time, but I've never felt that nervous possibly in my entire life than opening night of <laughs> sir. Well, I've asked everyone, so I've got to ask Patrick, what, is, what was your moment of, of terror or hilarity with, with Wagner or your moment that you knew you were, you were hooked in? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, I have to sort of, re- I have to kind of, I have a story, but I also kind of want to reiterate what Les said. The opening of Tristan, and I had sung, I had sung Trovatore, and I had sung Traviata Father, and I had sung all this baritone rep, but I went to my teacher, and I just said, I'm going to sing this opera. I know I will sing this opera. Mm. And that was while I was still a baritone. And he said, well, that, you, that's saying quite a bit, you know. <laughs> um, so I didn't know, but I would say my story was um, not dissimilar, actually, to Marjorie's, but my first Eric was in Leipzig with Simon Estes, and... I had some, been singing a long time already at that point, 15 or 20 years or something, baritone things. And every person who walked by, the stage director was like, Geht's Ihnen gut, Herr Rafter? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, are you okay? People in the direct conductor went, are you all right? And I'd say, yes, I'm fine. And then I fi- and then the last person was, this, was, I forget, the conductor, the stage manager, the director of the theater, and then the soprano came up to me and said, are you okay? And I'm like, well, yes, I, if I wasn't okay, I wouldn't be here. But apparently they had had a run, a difficult run with Eric's in the past that I didn't know. And I didn't know that the tenors weren't like a sort of level-headed um, people always at that point. Because I never took a job that I didn't feel confident that I could do. So I was like, yeah, es geht mir gut. And then it it went just fine, you know, but so that was my first Eric in uh, Leipzig with the Gewandhaus Orchestra. So that that was also scary. Uh, but opera generally leads to those kind of things. <laughs> Love it all. You've all been so generous with your time. I want to thank you all for being so forthright and, and open about your passion and your excitement. We're so excited to welcome all of you to the stage or to the audience of The Flying Dutchman starting up on April 29th. The Queen Elizabeth Theatre. Get your tickets at VancouverOpera.ca. Patrick wrote a great essay that's in our program. He'll also be giving a pre-show chat. Watch out for the essay from Stannis Smith called Why Wagner, which will be published on all our social media. Marjorie, of course, you will see on the stage, center stage, in fact. And Les will, well, Les will be conducting the orchestra. So I want to thank you all very much for being with us for fabulous Wagnerian discussion. I'll let you go back to getting ready for the big night. And uh, we'll see you, audience, all, all at the opera. And thank, thank you all. What a wonderful conversation. Loved it. Well, that's a wrap on our show. Hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to acknowledge our editor, Mac McGilvery, who's joining us for the month from BCIT. Thank you for doing a wonderful job on your first podcast. Over and out, and I'll see you at the opera.